Well, I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Today we shall look at verse 6. And if you're visiting with us today, first, we're so thankful to the Lord that you're here. We want you to come back, your very first opportunity. But second, just to let you know, we are in a short series on the Beatitudes. These that are found at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, And I believe that what we have in these Beatitudes, because of their strategic location and because of the profundity of what they teach, these are really the essential building blocks of what it is to live the Christian life. This is what are the very most basic component parts of walking in the kingdom of God. And to put it in another way, It is as if this is really the hub of the wheel out from which all of the spokes of the Christian life extend. But right here at the epicenter is found these Beatitudes. This is the very heart. This is the very soul of the Christian life. These are the qualities that lead into the kingdom and these are the qualities that are growing and increasing in our lives as we mature as believers. And so ever and always, these Beatitudes need to be at the very center of our being. And what makes them so uh, uh, astonishing is the brevity of words, the economy of words that our Lord uses here. There are only eight Beatitudes found in verses 3 through 12, and despite their brevity, there is a depth and a height and a breadth and a length about these Beatitudes that is absolutely astonishing and amazing. And so I have felt that it would be very strategic for our Christian lives, that it would be very important for us to hit the pause button in the midst of our study of the Gospel of Mark and to come to this uh, focus for us to look at these Beatitudes and then we will resume our journey through the Gospel of Mark. This is so relevant and important for every one of us here in the building. Sometimes when you preach on a text, there are some people that are present that, that it is more seemingly relevant to, to them than to others. For example, if I was preaching on, 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 on Christian dating today, that would take out most of the congregation, or I hope it would. <laughs> but to speak on an issue like this, there is no one here today but that it could be argued This is at the very center of what is the most important thing that you could ever hear in your spiritual life. Not because I'm teaching it, because I'm merely the mouthpiece for what our Lord taught. This is the very beginning of His public ministry. These are the first words that we have recorded coming from the mouth of our Lord in an extended sermon or discourse. And so, first things must be first in our lives. And so, I want us to really allow these Beatitudes to, to, to sink into our hearts all the more. 
for us to be saturated with these and we will be truly God-honoring people. So today we want to look at just verse 6. We're taking one sermon for each of the Beatitudes because they are that important. And so I want to begin reading in verse 1, but verse 6 will be our focus this day. The Word of God reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now today we've come in our study of these Beatitudes to the fourth Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Today, none of us... Almost none of us know what it really is to be hungry. And few of us have ever known more than a passing moment of thirst. But that was certainly not the case throughout the ancient world. In ancient history, men often knew extreme hunger and extreme thirst under life-threatening conditions, droughts. Famines, crop failures, water shortages, wars, pestilence swept through history and left in, a, in its wake a trail of starvation and dehydration and even death. If people cannot eat and cannot drink, they cannot live. It's that simple. Famine came to Rome in 436 B.C causing thousands of people to be at such a place of desperation that they threw themselves into to their death in the Tiber River. Famine struck England in the year 1005, leaving thousands and thousands dead. All Europe suffered, suffered massive drought conditions and famine in years 879 and 1,016 and 1,162, even in as late as the 19th century, with all of our advances in technology, 
Hunger stalked countries like Russia and China and India and Ireland. And countless numbers died. And more recently, thousands in the 20th century to the present hour have died and are dying this very hour of malnutrition and starvation and dehydration and the accompanying diseases that follow in great massive numbers in places like Africa and India and Latin America. In such cases where there is extreme hunger and extreme thirst, there comes with that heads that just surge with with pain, eyes become bloodshot, tongues begin to swell, lips turn purple and then they crack and then they, they burst, stomachs become knotted up, they swell, they scream to be filled, and so it goes, extreme hunger and extreme thirst, and it is very difficult for people like you and me to really enter in and understand what it really is to be hungry and to be thirsty. For us, simply to miss a meal, sometimes just to miss a snack, is a is a a jolting experience. But this physical hunger and thirst of many around the world is only a small reflection of a far more serious hunger and thirst that affects all mankind. It is a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst that is satisfied only by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Augustine of Hippo, writing in his confessions, spoke of this spiritual hunger when he addressed God with these words, You have made us for Yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. Close quote. Blaise Pascal put it this way, that there is a God-shaped vacuum within every human heart and it is restless until it finds its fulfillment in God alone. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they and they alone will be satisfied. There is down in your soul, placed there by God Himself, a restlessness to find satisfaction and fulfillment, and it will never be quenched until you hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are so many people in this world who are hungering and thirsting for happiness who are hungering and thirsting for blessedness, and they never find happiness. No one will ever be happy seeking happiness. The only way to ever know fulfillment and satisfaction in your life is to hunger and thirst for God and for His righteousness. And when you hunger and crave 
for God in your life to know Him more fully and to walk with Him more intimately, the result of that is happiness and joy and peace and blessedness and all of these things. God has placed down within your soul this hunger and this thirst, and you will never, ever be satisfied in life until you direct that hunger and thirst to the object of the righteousness of God, and therein alone will you be satisfied and fulfilled and content. That is what Jesus is telling us in this fourth beatitude. Now, as we look at this beatitude, I want to dive into this as quickly as we possibly can now. And I want to give you some headings that will help us think about this very important verse. And I want you to note with me first the obsession. The obsession of hungering and thirsting. Because the description described here by Jesus is one of extreme desire and strongest yearning. And if we are to be blessed and if we are to be satisfied, it will not be just a mere little passing, gnawing on the inside. We must have extreme desire and great hunger to the point of obsession for God and for His righteousness. Notice he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The metaphor that our Lord is using, the picture that He is painting, represents one of the most basic necessities of life. No one can live without eating and drinking. This is common to every one of us here today. And this hunger and thirst represents the strongest cravings on the inside of a person. Physically, it is for water and for food. And what is represented here is not a mere mild desire, but an inner ravishing for, that is intense for what is needed. Before we apply this spiritually, let me give you just a little bit of historical background. In the Middle East, in ancient times, people often lived on the very borderline of hunger and thirst to the point of actually loss of life. And what was the case with food, even more so with water... Water was often difficult to find, especially in that arid climate. And no one could just get in a car and drive to the corner convenience store and just buy something to drink or buy something to eat where there is an abundance of water and food all around. Consequently, they often lived on the very edge of life and death itself and had to think very strategically about their life so that they would never be far away from water or, for, or from food because if they were left in a state where they couldn't get to the water or the food, it could mean their own death. And so hungering and thirsting was very often, especially depending upon the season of the year, it was a way of life for them. 
And this is the picture that Jesus is painting. There needs to be within your soul a hungering and a thirsting that we will talk about in a, here in a moment that is for righteousness and for God. Now, I want to give you three marks of someone who's really hungry, someone who is really thirsty. Because it's easy for me just to say, yeah, hunger, yeah, thirst. Let me be more specific. Someone who is hungry, really hungry, someone who is thirsty, number one, is a single-minded person. That's what's on their mind. Nothing else really matters at that moment. Nothing else can even compete for their attention. It is dominant in their lives. This, is, this becomes their priority. This becomes their preoccupation. This becomes their passion. Not sports, not work, not grandkids. Not if you're hungry. Not if you're thirsty. There is one thing chiefly on the mind of someone who is really hungry and intensely thirsty, and that is to find food and to find water, and everything else in my life is of a secondary, supportive nature. And so it is with a person spiritually. We must become single-minded towards spiritual things. If we are really hungry and really thirsty, every one of us here today would be like a racehorse with blinders on it. We would be single-minded and focused towards the things of God. Not in a way in which we're irrelevant and don't work and don't go to school and do that well. We are to be well-balanced. But what is to be the drive and the passion of our life. We must be single-minded for righteousness. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm just telling you what Jesus is saying here. You know, there's a second mark. Not only single-minded, but a person who is hungry and thirsty is a driven individual. A person who is dying of thirst is a very active person. Now, this person isn't just sitting at home waiting to see if someone will just show up and drop something off at my front doorstep. Not if you're really hungry. If you're really thirsty, if you had to, you would crawl to the corner to get food and to water for water once you reach that point. Someone who is hungry and thirsty, once it reaches a serious state, that person is driven. He or she will travel any distance. They will pay any price. They will overcome any obstacle in order to find food and water. But if someone chooses to stay home and watch television... I'll tell you one thing about that person. That person's not hungry. Because if that person was hungry, there would be an active drive by which they would get up and begin to pursue 
food and water that they realize that they so desperately need. So it is in the spirit realm. So it is in the kingdom of God. One who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is propelled to seek God. Is obsessed with finding spiritual food and spiritual water that only the Lord can give. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Get up from where you are and go to where spiritual water and spiritual drink may be provided for you. Jesus did not say, if anyone is thirsty, just sit right where you are. I'll get around to you in a little bit. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. The one who is truly thirsty will come, will pursue, will seek, will travel, will overcome, will reach out, will expend energy, will do whatever it takes to find water and to find food. Someone who is hungering and thirsting, is single-minded, is driven. Third, is humble. I want to tell you something about a hungry person. They are probably the most humble people on the planet. They will take food on any terms. If need be, they're willing to put their head in a trash can to eat food. They're willing to eat leftovers from someone else's plate. They will eat food that has been overcooked, undercooked. But you let someone sit down at a table and begin to complain about the tablecloth. You know the fork's on the wrong side of the plate. I'll tell you something about that person. That person is a professional eater. That person is not hungry. That person is not thirsty. Because if that person was really hungry, they would eat the food off the floor. Because they must be fed. They must have food on the inside. And so it is spiritually. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is a humble person who is submissive, who will take spiritual food and spiritual water on any terms. They are willing, if need be, to go to a warehouse to be fed. They're willing to go to a bingo parlor to be fed. They're willing to sit in a room of cinder blocks and sit in small little chairs if need be, in order to be fed. Because they will take food 
on any terms. But let a person begin to complain about this or that in a church. It's too big, too small, too this, too that, it's too hot, it's too cold, people are too old or too young, service too traditional, it's too contemporary, church too near, it's too far. I'll tell you something about that person. They're not at a point of craving. That is why we cater. But when one is hungry, they're single-minded, they're driven, they are humble, they will do whatever it takes for their soul to be fed. So what does it mean that we must hunger and thirst? There must be a consciousness of our need, a consciousness to the point of desperation and a sense of feeling inward pain. There must be a strong desire within the soul. There must be an intense craving. There must be a gnawing on the inside of one's life. If one is truly hungry, there will be a single-minded obsession, a driving pursuit. It means something inside of you keeps on pushing you to reach out for God and for His Word and for His people that you would be fed to the point of being satisfied. Now, this is not just a passing feeling. Now, this is not just a, a momentary little cringe that is soon passes away. No, it's not here just for a moment on Sunday, but it's gone on Monday. No, this is something that is deep, it is profound, it is painful, it is like actual physical hunger and thirst that goes on increasing stronger and deeper and will not let up until one is fed. Such a person is restless and cannot sit still. Such a person thinks about this constantly. Someone else may be talking to them, but their mind is really on the fact that I am so hungry. It is what one dreams about. It is what one thinks about. Not merely just hungry, but craving, desperate to be fed. It is dominant on the mind such that it drives my life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This is the obsession of hungering and thirsting. Would you say that this represents your life today? Would you say that there is a hunger and a thirst on the inside of you for the Lord and for His kingdom that is the most dominant thing in your life? Of course, all of us here today would want it to be even more so. But can you say categorically that this is the description of my life, this one thing that I do, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what lies ahead? I must have more of God in my life. I want you to note second, not only the obsession, but second, the object. The object of hungering and thirsting. 
We ask the question, what must be the object of such craving on the inside of us? It's not enough just to be hungry. It's what are you hungry for? It's not enough to be thirsty. What is it on the inside of you that you so desperately must have? Well, the answer is right here in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, here it is, righteousness. Jesus is saying that there must be a deep desire within us for righteousness. Now, Jesus uses the definite article, the, before the word righteousness here, indicating that He's not talking about just any righteousness, but the righteousness, the only true righteousness that there is, that righteousness that comes from God. In fact, it is God's own very righteousness which He Himself possesses. That is what I must have in my life. I must have God's righteousness for my life. There is a self-righteousness that is simply a superficial facade. That's what the Pharisees had. Now, the Pharisees, Jesus, in Matthew 6 and verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness. That was a, a, a pseudo-righteousness. But what Jesus is talking about here is the real thing. The righteousness. The only true righteousness that there is. Now, as you're taking notes, there are two kinds of divine righteousness. And this is very important. There is the imputed righteousness of God, and there is the implanted righteousness of God. And I believe Jesus has His arms around both aspects of this. The imputed righteousness of God that we must hunger and thirst for is the declared righteousness of God in Christ that becomes ours in the act of justification. The great towering doctrine of justification that Paul belabors in the book of Galatians and Romans, but that Jesus Himself taught in Luke 18 and verse 14 to be justified by God, there, is, there are three uh, images here by way of historical background. Now, I don't want to lose you. We're talking about the two kinds of righteousness. We're under the first kind, which is imputed. And there are three historical pictures that you need to be aware of so that when you hear the imputed righteousness of God, you know exactly what we're talking about. The first is the courtroom setting where we as guilty sinners stand before the judgment bar of God, the books are open, all of our sin is made known, and we are weighed in the balances and found wanting, and we stand condemned before a holy God. Listen, that is true of everyone in this building today. That for us to stand in our own works before God, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the act of justification, the truth of justification, 
When the sinner believes upon Jesus Christ, it is a courtroom setting, and the divine gavel comes crashing down, and God declares the sinner to be righteous. That is what justification is. It is a forensic legal declaration by the judge upon the one who is condemned. He is acquitted of all charges. He is forgiven of all charges and has a place before the law and before the judge of one who has a right and perfect standing before the judge. That is the imputed righteousness of Christ. The judge declares us to be righteous. Now, we're not righteous because we're sinners. But because of Christ, God looks at Christ and His perfect righteousness and imputes that to us. You and I must hunger and thirst for that perfect righteousness. The second imagery is that of the accounting room. That in the marketplace... There in the financial arena, where one itemizes his books, or one itemizes your books for you, and you are shown to be bankrupt. You have no liquid assets, and the debt that you have sustained is so overwhelming, you could never pay it off in a million trillion years. And in the act of justification, with the imputed righteousness of Christ, all of the vast spiritual riches of Christ becomes deposited into your account. That is what Romans 4, 1 through 5 is teaching. That it is credited to our account. And though I am spiritually bankrupt, I have no spiritual capital to commend myself before God. That's what the first beatitude teaches. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But the imputed righteousness of Christ is deposited credited, reckoned to my account, and I now have a standing and an account with the infinite resources of His grace and His forgiveness now in my account. That makes you write a song, and can it be? The third image is that of the dressing room where all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of our self-righteousness, the very best that we have to bring to the table, it is still corrupt, it is tainted by our own sin. The very best that we have to commend ourselves to God, it is as filthy rags, and in the act of justification, our filthy rags are taken off of us and they are put upon Christ and He became sin for us at the cross and then His 
perfect righteousness is taken off of Christ and is placed upon us. And in that moment, we are dressed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. He bore the polluted garments of my sin, and I now wear the pure, sinless garments of His perfect righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Every one of us must come to the point where we realize that my righteousness is worthless. It is corrupt. It is tarnished. It is tainted in the eyes of a holy God. And I must have, and I've quoted this so many times for you, an alien righteousness a foreign righteousness, meaning it does not come from me, but that it comes down from God and is imputed to me. It is a judicial transaction. It is a legal transaction. It is an accounting transaction. It is a garment transaction. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is a progression of thought here from verse 3 to verse 6. This is how someone is saved. This is how someone enters the kingdom of God. Verse 3, they come to the point where they recognize that they are poor in spirit. That they are spiritually bankrupt before God. They have no spiritual capital by which they may commend themselves to God. Second, they must mourn over this state of depravity and bankruptcy. Third, they must be meek. They must humble themselves, come under the authority of the Lordship of Christ, and then cry out with a hunger and a thirst, Lord, clothe me with Your perfect righteousness. Lord, impute to my account Your perfect righteousness. Lord, bring Your judicial decree towards me. Declare me to be the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this entire transfer occurs by faith alone on our part. When we simply believe upon Jesus Christ. But we must hunger for it. We must thirst for it. This goes way beyond. Way beyond. Someone just, at the end of a service, just walking forward. You can do that at the mall. There's got to be down in the depth of one's soul a sense of desperation. I must be saved. I must be right with God. Oh, God, give to me Your perfect righteousness and I will be saved. Have you ever done this? Have you ever been alone with God? Have you ever wrestled with God like Jacob and the angel of the Lord through the night? And say, I will not let you go until you bless me.
This is imputed righteousness. This is justification. This is the forensic righteousness of God declared to be ours. Then second, there is the implanted righteousness. And at the very moment that we are declared to be righteous, we begin the Christian life with a new heart and a new mind and a new pursuit and a new direction, and God implants within us a, a righteousness that is His own. We now have the divine nature within us. And there is a new desire now to follow the Lord, to please the Lord, to pursue the Lord, to glorify the Lord. No one has to tell me to do that. God has written it upon the tablet of my heart. He has infused this in me. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And so this second aspect of righteousness is what we call sanctification. This righteousness is practical. Justification is positional. This is experiential. Justification is legal. This is experiential Christ-likeness. What is this practical righteousness for which we hunger and thirst? It is a desire to be free from sin. It is the overwhelming drive of my life to pursue holiness. It is the deep desire of my soul to grow in grace and godliness. It is a longing on the inside to be like my Savior, to walk closely with Him, to honor Him, to know Him, to serve Him. This is the practical righteousness for which we must desire. This word righteousness means conformity to a standard. And there is a desire in my life to be conformed to the standard of the character of God and to the teaching of the Word of God. Don't you feel this hunger on the inside of you? I believe for the most part you do. And the reason why is, in the new birth, God plants this desire within us. It's a God-given desire. As we receive a new heart and a new mind, there are now new appetites. Where once I hungered for the things of the world, I continue to live in the world and I want to do well in the world because that honors God. But what is really driving me and what is the Deep, intense desire of my soul. It is for righteousness. It is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is saying here. This is the object 
of our hunger and thirst. The psalmist speaks to it in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. If I could punctuate this with two cross-references, it's important that we teach Scripture with Scripture, that we affirm Scripture with Scripture, and we want to cross-reference Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I remember when I was in Israel... In the northern part of Israel, we came to a, a brook. The tour guide, uncertain, he said, if it wasn't this brook, it's one in the immediate area, and it would be just like this brook. In the heat of the summer, so hot, so arid, so dry. And this one brook with clean, cool, pure water. And the deer would come running. And the dust would be coming out of their nostrils. And their tongue hanging out. And they would plunge themselves into this, this brook of cool, cold, underground water and drink to their heart's desire. This is what the psalmist is saying God is in his life. As he lives in the arid terrain of adversity and difficulty, as the demands of living in this world dry him out, he says, my heart pants for God. My soul yearns for God. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for God. The other cross-reference is Psalm 63, verse 1. O oh God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Does not your soul this day yearn for God? Is there not a thirst in your soul for God? You've come to the point in your life where you realize that the polluted cisterns of this world cannot quench the longings that are in my soul. There once was a time that it temporarily satisfied me, but no more. I must have God. I must have fellowship with God. I must have uh, the worship of God. I must have the teaching of His Word for me to be satisfied. I want you to note now as we continue, third, the ongoingness of hungering and thirsting. Because we are to be always experiencing this hunger and thirst for righteousness. I simply want to draw your attention to this point and linger here just for a moment. But these first two verbs of verse 6, hunger and thirst, hunger and thirst, are in the present tense. 
they are both present active participles, which means we must be always hungering, always thirsting for more of spiritual truth and the spiritual presence of God in my life. It's not that this merely described me when I became a Christian and now I'm over it and now uh, there is no more sense of, of yearning on the inside for the Lord. No, it's not over. It's just the beginning. This now begins a new lifestyle, a habitual pursuit, a hunger to know His Word, a hunger to know God. As First uh, Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes, long for the sincere milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Let us always be starving for God. Let us always be longing for Him and craving His fellowship. Number five, excuse me, number four, the outcome of hungering and thirsting. What is the result? What, what, what would happen in my life for me to, to, to re-intensify my spiritual life, for me to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What would be the result in my life? And there's a twofold result in this verse. The first is blessed. The second is satisfied. This is wonderful. First, blessed. And we see what blessed means at the beginning of verse 12. Instead of the word blessed, for the first time, he gives us a synonymous set of terms that are parallel with blessed. We know what blessed means because at the beginning of verse 12, he inserts these two synonyms. Rejoice and be glad. You know who the happiest people are in this room today? Those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Doesn't matter the circumstance, doesn't matter the situation. There is in the heart a passion for God. And with that comes blessedness, happiness. Joy, gladness that can come only from the Lord. And then second, at the end of verse 6, the other aspect of the outcome for they, and I tell you each week this point, but it's important for me to say it and for you to hear it, for they and they only. For they and they alone. It is exclusively the possession and the experience that belongs to these. For they shall be satisfied. Now let me tell you, this began the moment you first drank from streams of living water. It's not just, well, one day I'll become satisfied. If you're in the kingdom, you are a satisfied man. If you're in the kingdom, you are a satisfied woman. You have already come to experience the satisfaction that comes in, with knowing the Lord 
and having one's sins forgiven and being imputed the righteousness of Christ and beginning the journey of being conformed into the very image of Christ. I just want to tell you this. You'll never hunger and you'll never thirst again. Spurgeon preached a sermon on this and the title of the sermon I'll never forget. The sip that satisfies. One sip from this water and you are you will never thirst again. Jesus said in John 4 verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Now was Jesus telling the truth? Have you drunk from the wells of living water? then I tell you on the authority of the words of Jesus Christ recorded in the canon of Scripture, you will never thirst again. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger, and he who believes in Me will never thirst You say, well, then why am I supposed to keep on hungering and keep on thirsting? Because when you took that first sip, you were so satisfied that you would never desire to look anyplace else to have the inner cravings of your heart met. But by this one sip, it has done something to you and it makes you want to have more and more and more and more. And if you had to get up from your house and walk to church, you would. If you had to crawl to where other believers are to have fellowship with them for your soul to be enriched, you would. Because after this first sip, it has so satisfied you, yet it has also so created an intense hunger and thirst for more and for more and for more. Not because you're unsatisfied. It's because you are satisfied. Because you are so completely now content in the Lord Jesus and with the Lord Jesus, it now makes you simply want to have more and more of Him, more of His Word, more of His grace. Psalm 107, verse 9, For He has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. Psalm 23, verse 1. seems like I quote this every week, but listen to it again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Sounds like a satisfied sheep to me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet, still waters. You prepare a table before me. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the outcome of hungering and thirsting. Would you be blessed? Would you be happy? Would you know joy? Would you be glad on the inside? Would you be satisfied? 
Would you be fulfilled? Would you be content? Then hunger and thirst for righteousness. And your cup will be filled to overflowing. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Finally, the order. The order of hungering and thirsting. How may you have this? You say, I don't know how to make myself hunger and thirst. I want to. How do I do this? The order. You begin with the first beatitude. You progress to the fourth. There is a logical progression. There is a necessary, inevitable progression. It begins with being poor in spirit. I don't need to re-preach that. It, need, it, it then flows into mourning over your sin. I don't need to re-preach that. When that is real in your life, that then leads to being meek, which then flows into hungering and thirsting. So therefore, when the first beatitude begins to waver in my life, so does my hungering and thirsting. When I no longer weep over sin in my life, when I am no longer repentant, when I, my heart is no longer broken towards sin, I am then no longer hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When I am no longer meek, when I am becoming self-centered, when I am becoming self-assertive, it is then that hungering and thirsting wavers in my life. Would I be truly thirsty and hungry for righteousness and for God? Then I must be continually growing in being poor in spirit and in mourning over my sin and in being meek and humble. And the more I humble myself, the hungrier I become. The more I mourn over sin in my life, the thirstier I become. The more I see my own spiritual poverty and say with Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, the more I crave and desire righteousness in my life. These are building blocks and they are set in the right and proper order. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What, a, what, a, what an indescribable pleasure it is for the Lord to satisfy our hearts, for the restlessness to be gone, for the pursuit of the trinkets of the things out there to no longer satisfy to now be single-minded towards God, to be driven, to be humble, and to know now His satisfaction and His joy, His gladness. What a blessing it is to be in the kingdom of God. If you've not yet come into the kingdom of God, I tell you, 
It is the greatest experience you could ever possibly know. And until you come in, you just can't know how great it is to be one of the Lord's. And as long as you're on the outside, it is incomprehensible for you to fully even understand how glorious it is to be one of the Lord's and to know Him. But I simply tell you, if this day you will hunger for righteousness that Christ alone can give you, if you would come to the judgment bar and say, Oh God, I know that I'm condemned. I know I have no basis to find favor in Your sight. I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. Oh God, look at Jesus and give me His righteousness. If you would say that to Him today, He would justify you. He would declare you to be acquitted of all charges. You would find forgiveness with the Lord. Would you say today, Lord Jesus, take off of me the soiled garments of my sin. I feel dirty. I feel unclean. Lord, take them off of me. Lord, give to me the pure, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Clothe me, God. Give me what is pure and clean. He would give to you the garments of salvation and you would rejoice and you would be so happy. Would you say to Him, Lord, I'm bankrupt. Lord, I have no righteousness of my own. Lord, You are demanding a payment from me that I cannot meet. Would You say to Him, Lord, put into my account the perfect righteousness of Christ. Were You to say that to Him, You would be richer than any man or any woman on this earth. For the abundant riches and treasures of the righteousness of Christ would be immediately transferred to your account. And you would be a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would inherit the kingdom of God. This is the offer being made in this house today. Most of us have already received this offer by faith. But I know beyond a shadow of any doubt that there are those here today who still have not received this offer. And right now in the quietness of your heart, in the depth of your soul, if you would cry out to God and say, God, I am a sinner. Give me the righteousness of Christ. Forgive me. You would immediately become a citizen in the kingdom of God. No greater offer has ever been made to you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us pray. Father, we do not want a superficial religion of outward trappings and appearance. 
Lord, we want a true righteousness. We want the righteousness that can only come from You. And without this righteousness, God, we are soiled, we are dirty, we are indebted, we are condemned. But with this righteousness, we are accepted, we are justified, and we are forgiven. Oh, Lord, give us this righteousness and we will be blessed and we will be satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The following has been an audio recording of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church and is under the direct copyright of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church. All recordings may be used freely for the ministry and application of the Word of God. However, written permission must be obtained from Christ Fellowship Baptist Church before any recording is broadcast or redistributed in any form. In no way should this recording be disseminated without the express consent of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church.